Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And we've returned with number 50 on AFI's top 100 list of American films. A little tiny, what do you say, like a small budget film? Indie film, definitely. Indie film, 2001's The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Probably the longest titled film on the list. Probably. It is also the most recent film on the list. It is, and the only film from the 2000s on the list. It is also the first film that AFI named Film of the Year. Is that true? Yeah, and that's probably because of its recentness. They probably weren't doing that in the past. Ah, very nice. Lots of firsts. Oh, yeah. And one final AFI fact. This was also number two on AFI's list for fantasy. Oh, what was number one? Wizard of Oz is actually number one on the list, Ethan. Wizard of Oz. That makes total sense. There are a bunch of films beneath that on you know 3 through 10 that don't really feel like fantasy films at all. Yeah, that list is a strange list, I will say. This is probably the one film on that list I would say is actually, can we say hard fantasy? I think hard fantasy is an appropriate term. Or, or high fantasy, yeah. I'm oh, certainly ahead. high fantasy, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Well, in any case, Ethan, why don't we jump off with what I imagine is going to be somewhat of an involved plot synopsis. Yeah, I tried to be as succinct as possible, but, you know, we can uh, be the the listeners can be the judge of that. Yes. <laughs> uh, this is on the longer end, though. Uh, but here we go. The Fellowship of the Ring is the story of Frodo Baggins, a young hobbit who has entrusted the One Ring of Power, a weapon created by the evil Sauron in order to control the entirety of Middle-earth. That sounds like a lot of mumbo-jumbo, and it kind of is. The film opens with Frodo's uncle Bilbo's birthday party, an elaborate and extremely large celebration that includes the entire community. Bilbo uses it as an excuse to leave his home for the East, where he plans to live with the elves and write his book. He reluctantly leaves his magic ring to Frodo, and his wizard friend Gandalf instructs Frodo to keep the ring secret. In the intervening years, Gandalf learns that the ring entrusted to Frodo is Sauron's one ring of power, and when he returns to Frodo, he reveals this to him and instructs him to take the ring far from the Shire, where the hobbits live. He recruits gardener Sam to join Frodo, and they all make plans to separate and meet back up in the town of Bree. On their way to meet Gandalf, Sam and Frodo encounter friends Merry and Pippin, and brave encounters with strange black riders who have a curious effect on Frodo. At Bree, they discover Gandalf has not shown up, and after Frodo accidentally puts on the ring, a ranger named Strider joins them and helps them avoid the Black Riders. The group leaves together on their way to Rivendell, the city of the elves, and along the way they are attacked again by the Black Riders, who mortally wound Frodo. As Frodo begins to fade, the group meets the elf Arwen, who takes Frodo herself to Rivendell. She outruns the Black Riders and uses magic to drown their horses as they cross a river. Frodo then is brought to Rivendell, where he's nursed back to health. Gandalf, of course, has arrived and relates his battle with fellow wizard Saruman, who has betrayed the cause of good and allied himself with Sauron. At Rivendell, a great council is formed of elves, men, hobbits, and dwarves, and they agree that the ring must be destroyed, though some seem to want to use the ring against Sauron. 
Frodo volunteers to take it, and Gandalf, Sam, Merry, Pippin, Strider, who's revealed to be the heir to the throne, he's that's the king, Aragorn, Boromir, who's a soldier of Gondor, Gimli the dwarf, and Legolas the elf all agree to accompany him. The Fellowship sets out for Mordor, where Sauron resides and where the ring was forged, as the volcanic Mount Doom is the only place that the ring can be truly destroyed. It's also where it was made. Along the way, the Fellowship attempts to cross the mountains, but are unable to do so and give in to Gimli's suggestion of crossing under the mountains in the Mines of Moria. To their disappointment, the mines are long abandoned and the dwarves have been killed by goblins and orcs. As they make their way through, orcs attack them and a greater evil, a Balrog, is unleashed. The Fellowship flees, and Gandalf confronts the monstrous Balrog. He defeats it, but is himself killed in the process, and the Fellowship escapes the mountains. They head to the forest of Lothlorien, where they are captured by elves and brought to the Lady of the Forest, Galadriel. Galadriel shows Frodo a possible future and refuses his offer of the ring. As the Fellowship leaves, Galadriel gifts them with several precious objects. Meanwhile, Saruman's hybrid orcs begin to hunt the Fellowship, searching for the ring. As the group moves down the river, the orcs grow closer. Frodo wanders away to think, and Boromir attacks him, trying to steal the ring. Frodo escapes, and Boromir sees his error, but the orcs arrive at that moment. Frodo decides to leave the group. Merry and Pippin use themselves as decoys for him to escape and are captured by orcs. Boromir is killed defending the hobbits, and Sam and Frodo run off on their own. Gimli, Legolas, and Aragorn decide to save Merry and Pippin as Frodo and Sam make their way into Mordor. And that is the end of this film. It's a long one. I think you did a great job giving us some of the highlights of it. I think this film's a little bit easier to think about when you break it into three acts, each broken up by a different elven city. You've got Rivendell, where the Fellowship is formed, and then you've got Lothlorien, where Galadriel, played by Kate Blanchett, is, and how that also transitions them to the breaking of the Fellowship. Yes. And I think I would characterize this film as a host of tests to yeah. many of the characters, by the ring. We know Boromir fails, Aragorn passes, Galadriel, Galadriel passes. passes, Gandalf passes, Frodo passes. Frodo passes. It's a little bit easier for hobbits. I mean, Bilbo had it for 60 years, so it did start to wear on him, just like it did on Gollum over 600 years. Just right. something you learn more about in other films when Gollum becomes an actual character as opposed to like this shady thing hopping around in the dark. Right, which is basically what you are. I mean, you are a shady thing hopping around in the dark, so... You're, you're absolutely right. <laughs> Except for my form has never changed. Golm is different in appearance in the is first Is that film. true? Your form has never changed? Never. I'm, uh... Incorruptible? I don't know about incorruptible that. Incorruptible <laughs> and perfection incarnate? That's, I think, oh. what I was going for. No, but, um... Golem is actually a different character model in the first film and the later two. And Peter Jackson has always said, like, oh, I should do a redo like Star Wars did no, and, and no. change it to make it match. And really, we should, you know, speaking of Star Wars, he did get a lot of help from George Lucas on this film, at least technically speaking. But the ending of this film with Boromir's death and the breaking of the Fellowship is a, is really a, a Empire Strikes Back moment. Definitely. Uh, it does uh, cliffhanger well. 
as I'm sure you know, Ethan, because you are as cool as I am with Lord of the Rings, that, <laughs> you know, the first book, Fellowship of the Ring, does not end with Boromir's death. No, it does not. That's the beginning of the second book, and yes. they put this in, and I really do think that was to make this more difficult plight, because this film itself has so so much less action than the, the next two. Yes, and, and this film is, in so many ways, um, reworked and repaced from the book. Um, it's it's reframed to really be a story about Frodo. Frodo become you know many of the changes that they've made from the source material to this have to do with resituating Frodo as the 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 main character, and it's his journey, right? Right. So you know, and, and also you have to you know part of adapting a film like this is to make it uh, commercially successful. So you can't end. Um, on on what the what the book ends on right what the novel ends on you, you you know things have to be sort of shifted around a little bit so that we get a dramatic loss that spurs our characters onward uh, to the next film right although we do have the loss of Gandalf right even though I will take a little bit of umbrage with your description there Gandalf doesn't die he disappears ah oh, you ruined it for everyone wait a second this is called <laughs> there will be spoilers yes he Gandalf yeah. doesn't die of course. Uh, he he lives on later, or I, I guess he's sort of resurrected later. Well, but in any case, he might die. Like that is something we can debate in the second film. But he has to fight that Balrog on top of a mountain, apparently, before yes. he dies. So there is some extra stuff we don't see. He needs to smite his ruin down the mountainside. Yes. <laughs> Ethan, I think we should back up a little bit and talk about some of these actors in this film because yeah, we ought a to. lot of these people are very famous now, but yes. I would say roughly half of them were unknowns before this film. Yeah, this film uh, does work in the Star Wars school of use mostly unknown actors. And I think we can keep making that Star Wars comparison because just like Star Wars that brought what we could say the epic sci-fi to a, a modern and general audience... Lord of the Rings does with epic fantasy. Yes, this really is a film that people thought could never be made. I mean, could never be create. You know, you, you could never film this story right up until uh, really the moment that that it actually happens, uh, and it does really bring us into the age of. Um, the sort of high fantasy, epic fantasy in the mainstream in a way that it had not been done before. Obviously, the Lord of the Rings as novels were were fairly mainstream, but not in in the same sort of way that a that a film, an action film, an epic action film in three parts makes it. Actually, as just a small side note about the novels, Tolkien refused to have them put in paperback. And he had to be like coerced basically to put them in the, I think it was Tor or El Rey, two big fantasy publishers, paperback publishers that made them mainstream because, you know, hardback books, hardback fantasy books, a little more inaccessible. Once we got to paperback, that's when we get to a more general audience. So they almost weren't even mainstream for a while because he just simply refused. And there's so many stories about the Tolkien estate about how, let's say, conservative they are with JRR's material. Yes, and I mean, you know, there 
there were all sorts of copyright issues in the in the states, right, where things were essentially uh, bootlegged uh, by publishers because of copyright laws and yeah, uh, and, and that sort of thing. Tolkien didn't want these to be three books. Uh, the publishers forced him to split his, you know, giant. What I mean, it would it would be probably close to nine hundred pages if it's all in one. Uh, thing into the you know these these three chunks and that is where we get the breakdown of the films right so you're right i mean there there was a lot of struggle to get this even into the basic mainstream that it was before this film but back to the characters let's start first with legolas played by orlando bloom orlando bloom because bloom really wasn't known he no. still hadn't finished drama school before he was hired for this he had two days left by the time he was hired for this film so <laughs> Yeah, he was a he, fresh, fresh face. And those now, course, two days would have probably helped him. He really needed them. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Throwing some shade on Orlando Bloom. Also, I think in the relatively unknown category was Viggo Mortensen. Yeah, he had been in stuff before, but uh, this, I think, really does catapult him to leading man status, uh, action hero status. And he almost didn't make it. They had somebody else cast as Aragorn uh, that, that they... Was Film? too young. Is what they yeah, said. too young, and I think they had filmed quite a bit of the uh, Fellowship before they were like, eh, and brought him in. You know who they wanted to have be Viggo uh, Mortensen's character, Aragorn? Tell me, Daniel Day Lewis. Oh, yeah, that would have been better. And so I have a few more of those really star power characters. Ooh, tell me, tell me. Tell well, me. first let's let's get to the list, and I want to save them a little bit of surprises. So. Uh, we have Liv Tyler as Arwen, and now to th- throw a pun that Ethan will understand and everyone else will if they follow us on Patreon and subscribe to us. This is part of her meteoric rise. <laughs> oh, her meteoric rise. So she's already well, relatively well-known, but this, this really establishes her as well. Yeah, I think so. Hugo Weaving plays Elrond. Hugo Weaving, fresh off the Matrix. And he's, of course, well-known by this point. You know, he's done plenty of stuff. But you know who they wanted to have be Elrond? Who? Tell me. David Bowie. Oh, that would have been fantastic. That would have been the best. I don't know if I could reconcile the Labyrinth's Goblin King with one of the highest elves in Lord of the Rings, though. True, it would have been a little strange, but... Yeah. Hugo does a good job. Ian McKellen is Gandalf. The immortal Ian McKellen. Do you know who turned down that role? Tell me. Sean Connery. Really? And, you know, he turned it down because he said he couldn't understand the plot. Oh, jeez. He's also like 100 years old. That's true, but this is a direct reason why he did League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, because he had turned down one too many fantasy (laughs) roles. And he said, I've got to do this. And he really backed the wrong horse in that one. Yeah, he picked a stinker. We've already mentioned Kate Blanchett as Gladriel. And John Reese Davies is Gimli, the dwarf. Yes. Notoriously hated filming, had a terrible time. And didn't get the Elvish Nine tattoo at the rest of the cast members. Yes, every other cast member got a tattoo. He did not get the matching tattoo. But he he had a terrible run. Of course, he's a very tall man. He's he's six one. Yes, and he played this dwarf, so so much of his role was uh, body doubled, and he had, I, from what I understand, he had a terrible time with the makeup. What what this this makeup thing is is that. 
he he was allergic to it and so he'd have to film one day on one day off just to let his skin clear up because of the dang reaction he'd be having yeah it sounded pretty miserable we've also got sean bean as boromir sean bean who we all know in every role sean bean is in he will die so don't uh get too attached although i think he's probably one of the better characters in the film one of the least better actors in that role like he definitely owns that toward the end yes with Bormir's collapse I really enjoyed his 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 uh take on that and and I you know I really have always thought that uh Boromir is one of the most interesting uh and fascinating characters in this film and in the novels uh he's I really uh understand Boromir's sort of through line his plot his breakdown uh because boromir comes in and is like stupids don't throw that away you guys are fucking dumb don't do this uh and it and it sort of takes hold of him right uh and and of course he has this great realization at the end that wow i really fucked up uh and and fights to uh redeem himself and i think he does but his sort of arc as you know this uh, as we find out in, in further installments, right, he's this essentially a prince, the closest thing you can get to a prince um, mm-hmm. in this world, uh, shows up, is trying to tell all these people like, yo, I'm a military genius. I know what's going on here. You are all being stupid. Tries to take this ring and and then realizes that, oh, I was totally wrong. I fucked it all up and, you know, does his best to make up for it. Well, because this is Good versus evil, right? It's high fantasy, yes. so you can't yes. you can't go into the gray areas that one would go to as a pragmatic person in reality. Yes, and I think Boromir does delve into that gray area in a way that most of the other characters, at least in the film, uh, simply do not. And that's why I disliked Boromir as a child, because this film came out when I was, what, 10? Right. And it's like, oh, he's trying to hurt Frodo, right? He's breaking up the Fellowship. He's a bad guy. But in reality, he's just the most human of them, which yes. makes him so much cooler. Me watching this as an adult, yes, and his, and, and even more so in the books, his his fall is particularly tragic because again, he knows what he's doing and he should know better, uh, but he becomes tempted and corrupted, uh, and we could argue back and forth whether that temptation and corruption is the uh, it comes from a magical source or if it comes from a uh, you know interior non magical source. Well, I could sort of split the difference and say it's both that yeah. any kind of imperfection or flaw in your character is magnified by the One Ring's magic. Right, amplified, yeah, absolutely. So, Ethan, to round out our list of characters, we've got a bunch of hobbits. So, of course, we've got Sean Astin as yes. Samwise Gamgee. And, of course, he's been in plenty of stuff by this point. So everyone, Rudy, Rudy, yeah, Rudy, exactly. Rudy. I don't really recall where Elijah Wood's notoriety or you know infamy depending on how you feel about him i think this was his breakout film though wasn't it it probably is actually i do have a tidbit elijah uh, elijah wood's first role in film is in back to the future part two he is a he's a little kid in back to the future part two i don't know if he had been in anything in the intervening years but i think this is really his breakout this is what most people know him from certainly we also have Dominic Monaghan and Billy Boyd as Marion Pippin. Yes. And let's just talk about Dominic Monaghan for a little bit because of those two final Which one is he? He is Mary, who is not the idiot 
Hobbit. Big nose. The, I listen. I don't. I don't really see him that way, but maybe he's the one who is <laughs> always like chastising Pippin, and Pippin's yes, the okay. one's always effing up. Yes. But Dominic Monaghan did so much on the film. Just looking at the trivia, he filled in for the guy who played Bilbo because Bilbo didn't actually go to New Zealand. He did all of his scenes like green screened effectively. Yeah. And so Monaghan would do the readings for people's reactions. So he actually is there. And oh. one day Andy Circus wasn't there to do all of his voices. So Monaghan, it's Monaghan's voice you hear sometimes instead of Andy Circus's for Golem and I think one of the Ring Wraiths as well. Oh, wow. So he's like, he's objectively the best Hobbit. I don't understand why everyone puts so much <laughs> emphasis on Frodo because Mary is clearly the better of the four. And which leads me to a larger point about the film. Like the Fellowship's track record at protecting Frodo is just abysmal. It's pretty he, bad. He gets stabbed by a Nazgul ring wraith top of that uh, old watchtower. And they're like, yes. oh, damn, that happened. And then they go to the Mines of Moria and gets like impaled by a cave troll and they're like, ah, oh, shoot, happened again, didn't it? <laughs> oh, like, no. Your whole job is to protect this guy. You can't do it. They do do a pretty shitty job. You are correct. Ethan, I Matt. think in order to for us to push farther into this deep, deep and all-encompassing film, we should maybe turn to our pivotal scene first. <laughs> yes, let's do that. So I actually picked a scene that was way late in the film, but it was one that really resonated with me and I think resonates with the theme of the film. We've already touched on this a lot, so we sort of preempted ourselves a little bit. Or maybe we'll just call it foreshadowing. This is Boromir's death speech. Oh, you chose something very late. Okay. It's very late, but I think it is perfectly in line with what this film is setting up and what it allows the other films to become. This is, well... This is where Boromir is getting shot a bunch by Lurts, which is the name of the Urukai, the hybrid orcs, as you call them, Saruman's minions. And Aragorn knocks its head off and runs over to Boromir, and then Boromir gives this little little bit here. So why don't we take a listen to that? Oh, let's. They took the little ones. He's down. Frodo. Where is Frodo? I let Frodo go. And you did what I could not. I tried to take the ring from him. The ring is beyond our reach now. Forgive me. I did not see. I have failed you all. No, Boromir. You fought bravely. You have kept your honor. Leave it. It is over. The world of men will fall, and all will come to darkness, and my city to ruin. I do not know what strength is in my blood, but I swear to you, I will not let the White City fall.
Okay, so I think this is one of the more touching parts of the film, and this is something we talked about, about Bormir being one of the more relatable characters or one of the more real characters. He goes from like this tragic state and says, look, all mankind will fall. We've really, we've really messed up. And he's personifying that fallen man. And then Aragorn accepts his own lineage as the king of Gondor, right? The only person that can claim the throne because as we little later learn that Gondor is being sat by a steward and he's really not great for well we'll we'll get there but right effectively they need a king to lead them and aragorn has rejected that role and this is his moment of accepting it saying look i don't know what strength is in my blood but i'm going to be there to help and so this is him accepting lineage but saying there's not any fatalism to that blood anymore something that we recall earlier from his conversation in rivendell with arwen where he says you know the same blood runs in my veins the guy who didn't destroy the ring right i have to mm-hmm. own that but now he's owning this ability to become king without the negative side of it so really seeing aragorn come into his full self here i think that's actually a really interesting choice to make because up until you've said this i never really thought about this particular scene as a turning point for aragorn who is Arguably, aside from Frodo, the the main character of this uh, set of films, right? Because we, we yeah. get Frodo's journey to destroy the ring, right? Um, and what runs parallel with it is Aragorn's ascension to the throne. Uh, and, and so I think this is a, an interesting choice to make because you're right. He does in this moment accept uh, this thing that he's been uh, reluctant about throughout the film and and both of these characters right both aragorn and frodo are reluctant characters who eventually acquiesce to the roles that have been thrust upon them a la hero's journey right yes of course another Um, connection to star wars another very regimented hero's journey yes i mean absolutely i think this can get us into the next film in the future but we do see Aragorn rejecting his lineage in Rivendell and again in Lothlorien, those two elven city, you know, act breaks, I like to think of them as. Sure. And Boromir's like, ah, oh, they're going to blow the horn of Gondor and say, the lords of Gondor have returned. And Aragorn's just like, so not about that, right? He's just yeah. nonplussed by it. But it's on Boromir's death that he says, look, I'm going to fix this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to try to redeem man because all the other races we know don't think highly of men because men want power above all else. That's what Galadriel says in the opening little role about the creation of the rings. And who doesn't want power? Come on, Galadriel. Get over yourself. Read some Foucault. And she's also <laughs> one of the ones that you know clearly does want power. She's tempted by the ring. She yes. ultimately passes the test, but that temptation is there, so she's not above reproach either. But So you've got the elves and dwarves who dislike the humans because they are petty in a way that they can't see the long game right they're also the shortest lived of the races i guess that makes sense but so aragorn shoulders the burden of humanity and so we're going to see him go forward and that's how he resolves to let frodo go out on his own with sam to actually do his thing he says look we can't control their fate all we can do is deal with the hand we're dealt and we've got other hobbits to go save right so i thought it was just a beautiful moment of characters making realizations or aragorn specifically but also Frodo realizing that people are going to keep trying to take the ring. And so he has to take more of this burden on himself 
than he ordinarily originally thought he was going to. For sure, definitely. Well, Ethan, do you think um, we should go ahead and turn to our three questions since we're already really deep into this episode? Yes, this, and you know, when we get into these epic films like this, it we it, it there's just so much information that uh, it's it's hard for us to try to tamp it down. So yes, let's jump into the questions. And just to kind of fill us out a little bit more with what you just said, I, I do think I have a lot of love for this franchise and the series. And so it can be very easy for us to just go rambling on forever. But I think a nice, maybe a little bit shorter than four hours of conversation right it's probably the best well and i think that i think that's a good point i mean for people that are our our age right uh and i'm only a year older than you um or maybe a year or two 1990 you're 91 aren't you that's right yeah so you know we're just a year apart this is sort of a foundational film again if we're going to make a star wars uh comparison you know to to the kids that came you know came of age in the uh, in the 80s, right, that were kids in the 70s, Star Wars is their movie. This is a cultural touchstone for uh, so many people that are, you know, in their mid to late 20s now because we this was a blockbuster, humongous uh, cultural touchstone. I mean, it became, a, you know, a huge movement in the culture um, that, you know, our students, you and I both teach, right, students that are – uh, about a decade younger than us, th- they don't have this, uh, and, right. it blow- and it blows my mind because we forget that, like, yeah, this this came out uh, what eighteen years ago? years ago. Yeah, yeah, it's insane. It's wild. It's it feels like yesterday, but you know, it was eighteen years, almost twenty years ago. This film came out, so uh, th- you know, this is important to us, but maybe not as important to younger people or older people, I guess. Right, which I think very much answers our first question already, right? Do we care about this film? Yeah, unequivocally. I think you and I are both on the same page here, and I think age has a lot to do with it, like you mentioned. Although I would say that this does matter for older people, but I would say much older people, people who had that cultural touchstone in the reading of the books of that age, right? So my great uncle had that cultural touchstone. That's why I knew about this film. Of course, my dad enjoyed it also, but you're right that Star Wars you know, growing up as a kid in the seventies, star Wars was my dad's film. And I think, you know, if I just do the math, I think he was at the same age that I was between when I saw this film and when he saw star Wars. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And of course the novels have a, uh, resurgence in the seventies. This is, they come from the mid fifties. Uh, but the the seventies, these things, uh, have an uptick in popularity. Um, and it's then, that paperback thing again. Yes, exactly. The you know this is print culture that dictates this, uh, and then you know we we get this again in the uh, early two thousands, the early aughts, right? Because of the film. So to give a little bit of a personal story with my viewing of these films, when I first saw Lord of the Rings, had no idea what it was. Saw the first thing, first thing, the first movie. Thought it was awesome. You know, my parents were worried maybe it was a little too intense for a 10 year old, but no, I was so into it. It like unlocked something inside of me. And then I was then required by my great uncle to read each book before we went and saw the film. Ah. And we went to the midnight showing. So they're usually on weekdays. So I would sleep after school until like nine o'clock and then I'd wake up and go watch the films. 
that was like the the trade-off if you slept during the day you can go to the midnight showing so i saw the rest of the two films at night and i can remember finishing the two towers in the car on the way to the theater before i went to go see it so Ah. such fond memories of this i have a lot of love for this series and uh, i think that makes some of these next questions important to us so let's go ahead and ask them what do we owe to this film well uh, i mean i think the the sort of love for high fantasy that we see that comes out of this um that resurgence of that uh we absolutely owe uh, in the way that video games deal with this, in the way other films deal with this. I mean, this is a film that takes a genre that we've seen in, what, the basically the 50s, 50s and yeah. 60s, um, you know, in things like Ben-Hur, the sword and sandal sort of stuff, and translates it into something for the 21st century, right? Uh, again, it, it, even though it's taking uh, a property, an intellectual property from the 50s, um you know, it reworks it in a way that the 21st century audience is totally on board with. I mean, this is a, a three hour movie uh, yeah. and there are two more three hour movies uh, that then all of them become like five hour extended two DVD, you know, versions. So th- this, be- this, this epic long drawn out, you know, humongous event is something that doesn't show up until the aughts again, right? It loses uh, favor in. I mean, look at the films we've seen, saw, we've seen on the list so far. The seventies is all about antiheroes and and Vietnam films. You know, uh, these sort of dark, gritty, urban things. This takes that totally away from that that direction, right? We go into this beautiful epic. Uh, you know, vistas and mountains and things like that, which, you know, had, had clearly fallen out of fashion just based on what we've, uh, the last 50 films we've looked at. But I also think this film does a good job of inheriting some of that gritty, dark stuff because we, we're yes. sort of on the cusp of dark fantasy here mm-hmm. with particularly the the later films, right? The last two. This first one, you know, they're all shot at the same time, which is something we'll talk about with it holding up. Even though all shot at the same time, there is a difference in attitude, and it very much feels yes. like we get closer to a modern understanding of fantasy. You know, obviously, we owe Game of Thrones, right? Like, yeah. like this film particularly defines the aesthetics of Game yes. of Thrones, absolutely. And some of the some of the tone as well, and you know, the books themselves come out of these other. I mean, Tolkien's so inspirational for any fantasy writer he's he's kind of foundational in that regard yeah and you know i think maybe in that vein we can we can thank uh this film for the shift towards um this cultural moment of of marvel movies of superheroes because this is not a superhero film this is not colorful and fun and light this is heavy um this this has you know if you want to delve into the history of these characters there are you know, thousands of pages of things you can read. Whereas you go into something like Marvel, they, they said, even though that becomes its own behemoth, that has a very different tone. Um, it, you know, so I think that there is a pivot away from this in some ways into this superhero genre that we've all, uh, been sort of forced to <laughs> accept. So to kind of cap off the rest of this question, I think I'd give my thesis here. I really didn't give it earlier because I didn't think it was 
as impactful as because I, I think the, the what do we owe question is the most important of three for this film in particular yeah but effectively i mean these books mean a lot to a lot of people and this film does justice to that and yeah it's, and it's mostly because of its titanic undertaking right the idea that they took what 16 months of filming like people were in new zealand just all this time yeah and there are so many stories that i would love to share but just give a few examples of crazy production stories i think it's like 1600 eggs were served a day to cast and crew right because of how big it was there were two people for the duration of the filming where their whole job was to just connect plastic rings together the right. was supposed to be the chain mail the chain mail that, and it like wore off their fingerprints on their thumbs and index fingers or something like Vigo Mortensen really taking to swordsmanship I think his actual trainer says the best swordsman he's ever cha- trained but Mortensen would like never take his uh, sword off when he's right, walking he'd around. Go to the, yeah, he'd go into town with that fucking sword on. Yeah, I th- I think this is a really good thing to sort of point towards is that what we owe in in some way to this film or the, uh, this set of films is that, like you said, the behemoth uh, undertaking of production. Um, in that you know you can make a film like this and it. It go the, the production itself gets away from the film, right? It becomes its own other animal. Um, right. That you know, you look at even films like Star Wars uh, that that did something similar did not have productions like this, you know. And just think of how insane it is that you're going to film three films all together, and you haven't even seen the reception of the first one. So mm-hmm. they spent all this money. Like this is a logistical feat that I think is still unmatched today in terms of scope. Yes, absolutely, and many many uh, films have have emulated it or or emulated it, but cut corners and things like that. And you can see that. I mean, the the practical shots, the the costumes, the clothing, the colors, everything in this film is, uh, you know, I mean, we're talking about hand stitched bullshit. Like, yeah, there's a 300 person art department for this film. Like, this film wasn't filmed; it was lived. Right. I mean, it really was. And and like you said, it had a 16 month uh, film film schedule, right? They were filming for 16 months. That's insane. It's that's wild. Like five units doing filming a day. So that's not just like one camera or a bunch of cameras doing one thing. It's five separate instances all going on at once. Right. So the the production itself is uh, a, a story worth exploring uh, just aside from the film. Right. Yeah. Uh, so it's wild. I mean, and so we have to owe something to that. The idea that you can fund a, a fantasy film with elves and, you know, hobbits and dwarves. Um, and you can have this humongous production and this humongous budget uh, and and sell tickets is is unprecedented up to this point. Which is why this film did not get... They didn't film it until the 2000s when, they, you know, Peter Jackson and all these people convinced... Uh, you know new line and whoever to to do it right it just i mean it was considered unfilmable for years did you know that uh stanley kubrick wanted to do a version i did i did know that kubrick wanted to do it and can you imagine what the stanley kubrick version of this film would be i don't think it would have had as much of an impact as this film did in terms of establishing modern fantasy in popular media so like video games movies tv but it would have been one hell of a thing to see. Oh, it would have been case. wild. It would have been fucking yeah. wild. <laughs> so, Ethan, let's turn to our third and final question. 
Yes. Does this movie hold up? Absolutely. I mean, there are a few moments visually with some of the CGI that is a little rough, uh, but watching it in high death uh, on, a, you know, a, a decent sized television in 2018, this film uh, looks fantastic. Uh, the pacing, uh, particularly of Fellowship, uh, the, you know, the first of three is great. Uh, the story itself is is i mean this is because it's hero's journey it's timeless it's myth practically um Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean there's very little in which this film does not hold up i would say visually that there are some moments where i thought oh that doesn't look as nostalgia perfect as i remember of course right necessarily but then you see that kraken in the moria lake and you think you know what that looks just fine for 2001 like, this is not anything that you look at and say, ooh, that didn't age well, right? Yeah. There are some Gumby CGI moments where you think like, a oh, few. okay. But for the most part, they did so many things with practical effects. Yes. Like, for instance, build a pony in distant shots is two men in a horse costume because they couldn't get a horse on a mountain <laughs> as easily. Ah, <laughs> so that true? Like, that's absolutely true. Like, look that up. And <laughs> when they're climbing Mount kataharis i think it is mm-hmm. you look at a distance and the, like the pony's moving in kind of a slightly weird way and it's because it's two dudes walking up a mountain in a horse costume that is the greatest thing i've heard in my life yeah yeah i mean i think you're right and they also pull the jurassic park school of uh cgi in that yeah. you use it in the dark you use it in short you know bursts um and and you do it with a lot of things happening on the screen so that uh, – and, and there's rain too, right? I mean rain mm-hmm. – all of these things to make it so that – you know, which is why Jurassic Park holds up, right? Jurassic Park holds up because it, you don't get these out in the bright, open you know, world. Uh, and if you do, it's quick. These are quick shots so that you don't get a chance to see uh, the, the faults in it, right? It's done mm-hmm. – quickly it's done in the dark it's done with movement um and for the most part it looks pretty damn good i agree and ethan that's really going to draw us to a close although we do have a few other things to say since we kind of got a little schedule off kilter we'll return next week on afi top 100 list that'll be number 49 on the list intolerance intolerance do you know anything about that film i do not it's W.D. Griffith, guy who did Birth of a Nation. Oh. So that'll be interesting. Th- yes, that will be uh, interesting to say the least. But also relevant to listeners of this particular episode, we return to our super secret bonus content on Patreon. Next time, it will be Lord of the Rings Two Towers. Yes, it will. So sign up for that shit. And check us out. And check us out. Until next time, I've been Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. Keep the spoilers. Keep them safe. There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, 
and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers.